This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets, where we take a run through of all the big financial investing news of the past week. I'm Laura Suter, and as usual, I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hi. So last week, we took a look back at what has happened in the year. So this week, we're going to take a look at perhaps what 2019 holds, what changes investors need to be aware of, and some of the reasons why we can actually be positive about the next 12 months and beyond. And glad to say this week, we're joined by Russ Mould from AJ Bell. Hello, Dan. Hello, Laura. Season's greetings. To you too. Yeah. So before we get our crystal ball out and start looking at our predictions for next year, let's just have a quick look at what happened in markets this week. So this week we had the big revelation that it's not just high street retailers that are suffering, it's also hit online as well. That's right, with ASOS giving a, a, a quite a big profit warning, um, spooking everyone. It's talking about having to do lots of discounting. It's really hurt its profit margins. Well, the analysts were pushing through massive downgrades to its earnings forecast and I think pretty much shares in across the retail sector, whether you are online only or you've got bricks and mortar shops, um, they all went down. So I guess people were just really worrying about what's going on because um, I think people thought that online was, was fine for a bit. So if you're online only operator like ASOS, you could have sort of just sailed through. So I don't know. Have you been shopping in ASOS recently? Yeah, Perhaps. I shop in ASOS a lot. I'm part of the the one of the problems for the blight on the company, though, of the continual returners, which they say is a bit of a drag on their expenses. Yeah, it's not a costless model on time retail, online retailing, and that's one of the biggest problems they've got is the stuff that comes back that they have to deal with. The other thing that ASOS are still having to deal with is they'll be buying their stuff in dollars and they'll be booking it in, a lot of it in pounds. So it'll be a big currency problem for there for them on the margin front as well. And they've been hit massively, haven't they, by the kind of bargain or the cut down prices. So Boohoo, which is one of their big rivals, um, launches a sale. Then they've said that they basically, or commentators have said they basically have to then cut their prices to compete, don't they? It was quite interesting that Boohoo did put out a statement about an hour after ASOS is saying, actually, you know, we, we had a fine Black Friday. Nobody cared, um, though, did they? Yeah. And, um, you know, everything's fine. We're on track. So it sort of begs the question is, are people just falling out of love with ASOS? Um, you know, we've had sort of warnings from Superdry. You could argue that sort of brand is a bit tired. I think that brand's a bit tired. I mean, no disrespect yeah. to Julian Dunkerton, who I know is itching to do, come back and do things to the business, but when I'm standing in, you know, parks in Brighton, you see people of a certain vintage wearing super dry. You do start to wonder whether it may have naturally run its course. I mean, a lot of it, its growth recently has come from overseas markets. So it may not have twigged onto the fact it's no longer quite as cool that it was anyway. But I think once you see that degree of ubiquity in a brand, I'd imagine its core market would be looking thinking, well, if he or she's wearing it and they're over 60, I'm not sure I necessarily really want to be seen wearing it now. <laughs> so wait, are you saying that I shop in ASOS and ASOS now isn't cool? I'm well, not cool. I think what? ASOS is cool. I think the problem that ASOS has got is that a lot of it has grown through adding more stuff and adding more brands rather than organically, you could say. The website's now a lot more complicated than it used to be in terms of navigating your way around. So a lot of the growth has just come from piling stuff in, which works for a while, but doesn't always you know, work forever. So Primark also had a bit of um, sort of spooked the market a few weeks ago saying that um, sales weren't as perhaps good as people were expecting. Mm. But I, I went there the other day to get some stuff for my kids for their Christmas, um, something they were doing at school. They had to get something in red, um, green or gold. Because uh, you go in there, they haven't got anything. So actually it could be... 
are some of these retailers not actually having the full breadth of the, the product people want? I mean, the, the, the online retail model, all of it's based on very rapid stock turn. So they won't want to get left with loads and loads of stuff because, you know, ASOS is now talking about a 2% operating margin. So it doesn't want to be left with loads of stuff that it then has to discount its way out of trouble. So they will tr be trying to keep things relatively tight, I would suggest. And also, they'll be taking a view on what the UK consumer is doing. If you look at the GFK UK consumer confidence data, doesn't look very good. I think the latest reading was minus 13, which was you know back to where we were a couple of years ago. So it, it, people are being very, very careful for whatever reason, whether it's the fact that their credit cards, you know, there's a lot of debt on there already, or they're just concerned about inflation, or the B word, whatever it happens to be. Consumers are definitely, it feels like, being fairly careful right now. And the weather certainly hasn't helped either. I mean, I know we bang on about it an awful lot with resellers. My wife works for a seller of posh pots and pans and expensive Japanese kitchen knives. They noticed to drop off in footfall over the weekend just because the weather was absolutely disgusting. So, and they, they do have and they do have some stores that are in these mega shopping malls, but it, it does definitely have some kind of impact. And so, when this, the potential reaction by retailers is to go and discount everything, um, you know, they kind of hope that they're going to shift more goods that way. But yeah. that's, uh, discounting is such a it's such a nasty thing to get into. It, it, it's hard once, to come once, out of that. It is, and I think if you look at if you look at fashion retailing, which is my wife's origin, she says the internet has done three things. One of which is kill prices. The corollary of that is it's therefore kill quality, in her particular opinion. That goods just don't last for as long as they used to do. Now that may be by design, it may be by accident, but as a result of the drive for lower cost, and I certainly notice it with the shirts that I buy, they just do not last as long as they used to do. And obviously, then there is the potential collateral damage to the high street, which the government is trying to do something about. People are constantly looking. And now you're seeing the real estate investment trusts, like British Land, talking about mixed developments. They're not just talking about being commercial landlords anymore. They're talking about residential elements to some of their major projects in London. So even the big real estate investment trusts are looking to start moving down the residential route, which is kind of interesting. With the discounting, it's not just it's not just retail. You're seeing it in the oh, no, across sure. the leisure sector with um, restaurants companies. They're perhaps one of the worst offenders for doing it. I mean, the restaurant group which owns Frankie and Benny's and, and now owns Wagamama. Wagamama's, yeah, good luck with um, that. So I used to talk to them quite a few years ago, and a previous chief exec used to say we would never go down the discounting route. We would always find um, a way, or you know, if, if times were hard, we perhaps switch to a different like a cheaper cut of meat or something like that um but you know now you know, frankie and benny's are, are discounting like everyone the, the problem is once you can say once you you do it Very everyone hard. gets used to it yeah. um, mm. and then you think next time you're going to go into this brand you look around on the internet for your vouchers which is what certainly the kids at my mum you know the mums and dads at my kids schools pizza express i got to think of anybody who pays full price there now i know it isn't a quoted company but nevertheless yeah paying full price in pizza express Forget it. Most people just don't bother because don't there's always a voucher out there somewhere. Well, no, we, 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 um, we had a, a, some people from the office went to Pizza Express last week. And at the end, just as they're giving out the dessert, um, the waitress came around and handed every single person a voucher for money off. And I thought, it, I thought this is just bizarre. <laughs> that is a bizarre yeah. model. So on to 2019. Laura, you've been looking at some of the big changes we can expect from our personal finance next year. Exactly. So I'm going to start with some positive ones because everyone wants to hear that they're getting a bit richer. So um, so there's some pretty big changes coming next year. We've got income tax allowances increasing. So the amount that people earn before they hit certain tax bands will rise. Um, so the, the amount you can earn tax-free rises to £12,500. And the amount that you can earn before you hit the higher rate tax ban rises to £50,000. So that's all good news. And the flat rate state pension is rising to £168.60 a week. 
But is, 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 what about the age? Is that changing as well, isn't it, for when you get the state pension? Yeah, exactly. So that will um, increase to 66 next year. So you, you have this gradual increase. But um, yeah, that will hit 66. So you get more pension, but you have to wait longer for it. Have we got some idea of how far the, these age... Um, lifts will go is it a certain is it sort of 67 68 or even older than expecting us to to work until we get our pension yeah so by 2037 it will hit 68 so we've got this kind of gradual ramping up um, of the state pension age and so then other things that are coming in next year mortgage interest relief which is quite complicated um, but it's basically the tax cuts that buy to let landlords um, have have been gradually being cut away each year and there's another slicing down of that next year so it means the amount of the mortgage interest that you pay that you can offset against your profits is cut down again next year so that's a bit of a hit for landlords um, and anyone that commutes is going to see it get more expensive from January. I think that's that's a given, isn't it? I don't think, has there ever been a time? I've already, we... paid, I bought my season ticket in November. That was another three and a half percent. So there we go. Yeah. Well, but that is a, a good tip, Russ. Good personal get finance in before tip. January. Get in before <laughs> January when it's going to rise 3.1% for most season tickets. Um, and we've hit the 10K commute mark from next year. Um, which is quite alarming. Crikey, where do you have to live for that? Uh, Coventry to London, including tube travel. But there is a fast train from Coventry to London that's only an hour. So it seems quite far away, but actually, travel time, not that bad. Great, let's all move to Coventry. What, and pay 10k for a commute? I bet property's cheaper than London, though, by by some distance. No disrespect to Coventry, so there could be a quid pro quo there somewhere. We should do the calculations of how long you have to live there before your commute costs outweigh your... (laughs) There you are. Right, I'll get right on that. Um, And then another good thing for the younger listeners, 26 to 30 Railcard will finally launch. So this is a plan by the government to offer reduced rail fares for... It's been called the Millennial Railcard. It had a trial then it had a kind of initial period then there's been delays it was meant to be launched this year but actually it's now going to be launched in January finally of course some people during that time have gone over the age of 30 who previously thought they'd be eligible but won't be anymore but let's not put a damper on a good news story yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so on to the markets next year Um, so Russ I mean I'm Mm. sure you could probably list hours and hours and hours (laughs) but I promise to keep it short (laughs) Of, uh, of of what to expect. I mean, so if I knew that, would yeah. I be sat here? Is the first question. <laughs> You'd be a millionaire. Yeah, well, there we are. But some some of the key themes. Obviously, we, yeah. Brexit is a big unknown. But what, what else is sort of? I was trying not to mention that one. Um, but I think for me, the single biggest issue actually of this year that's been the elephant in the room and that will be the biggest issue next year is liquidity and the fact that central banks at the moment. I mean, Chairman Jay Powell of the Federal Reserve may change his tune in the next few weeks. We don't know. But with the Federal Reserve starting to withdraw quantitative easing, the Bank of England stopped adding to it a couple of years ago. The European Central Bank has now stopped adding to it. The Bank of Japan is undershooting its target. Central bank assets are now flat year on year looking at their balance sheets rather than up 20, 30 percent year on year. So all that cheap money that we've been used to, that's basically enabled most assets to rise with a very, very strong tide, that tide's now going out. And I think as a result, People are now starting to, investors are starting to treat money with a bit more respect because it's now costing something. If you can get 3% from a US 10 year treasury, the old Tina thing, there is no alternative, no longer holds. There is an alternative now because you can get 3% in US dollars for sitting on your bottom. So, in that respect, I think people are treating money with more respect, and you've seen it go like a domino effect. 
First quarter, cryptocurrencies blew up. Second quarter, low volatility, low vol strategies. Third quarter, emerging markets. Fourth quarter, FANG and tech and, and highly valued stuff. So you people, as people treat money with more respect, they take a little bit less risk, and you're starting to see that filter through. So the big issue is, does the Fed continue to, quote, normalize policy with more rate rises and less QE? Or, courtesy of pressure from Donald Trump, courtesy of pressure from the financial markets, or because the US economy, indebted as it is, is more sensitive to even small increases in interest rates, did they force the Fed to change tack or not? And that, for me, is the biggest issue next year. So the one issue I've been looking at is corporate debt. Um, Related there too, yeah. because again, corporate debt's gone through the ceiling, and therefore you don't need interest rates to go back to 5 6 7 8% for it to put the squeeze on. No. I was going to say, it's, it, there seems to be growing concerns that if, if rates do go up, um, more it costs more to service the debt. Um, are, are companies fully prepared? Um, have they been living in a, a sort of a, an environment where they've been sort of refinancing at low rates for, and they're sort of used to this um, easy pattern to follow? I think what you need to watch particularly is companies that have been funding their dividend payments or their buyback programs through debt. I think there is where you've probably got to be careful. It's more prevalent in the US than it is here. But there was a statistic one of your colleagues on Shares Magazine showed me the other day about the, num the amount of bonds that have been downgraded from A to triple B in the fourth quarter of this year is basically at multi-year highs. So the credit rating agencies, who are generally criticised for being asleep at the wheel, are actually saying, carefully, and the Bank of International Settlements picked it up with its quarterly review this week, there's a lot of debt out there that looks dead easy to service right now, but as interest rates creep higher, it will start to put a bit of a crimp on things. And if it does start to knock share buybacks, which have been running at record levels this year, that takes away one big source of buying for the stock markets. Now, it's not the only one, but it's nevertheless been an important one. And it was interesting to see that when Johnson & Johnson in America got caught up in the asbestos talcum powder thing last week, the first thing they did was announce a share buyback. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make, it doesn't make Johnson & Johnson a better company. Mm. It doesn't solve the talcum powder problem. But it's kind of engineering the stock. It's financial engineering, not product engineering. That's great when money costs nothing. It's not so good when interest rates are going up and you've potentially leveraged your balance sheet. Now, J&J, very cash-generative company, but you'd still need to make absolutely sure in your own mind that it wasn't gearing up and pulling debt on the balance sheet for something for which it will gain, as a company, no return. Yeah. At all. Well, I've been reading about um, sort of growing concerns about a drop in lending standards. Um, so in the US, the share of leveraged loans, where's no requirement for borrowers to meet uh, covenant light. Sort of, yeah, for financial tests like like um, interest coverage ratios at maximum leverage. Um, so that's risen from around a quarter in 2007 to about 80% today. It's, it's not a good sign. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is not a good sign. Also, in, in the UK, the Bank of England's been, been sort of warning that a lot of new lending, uh, like you say, it's been engineering changes. In, in firms' liability structures that not funding new investment in the business. Um, again, it's also been talking about underwriting standards being a bit too loose. I mean, this is it's kind of all It pointing. kind of smells like 2005, yeah. six, doesn't it? I mean, which may mean we've still got another couple of years, but it's you can see it's sowing the seeds of potential difficulties. It may mean, of course, that central banks are just badly boxed in mm. and that although they may want to raise interest rates, they'll find that the economy is much more sensitive to minor changes. Now, just on, on that point, having gone through all Fed rate cycles since 1970, it's taken an average of nine quarter point rate increases to stop a US equity bull market in its tracks. If Powell raises this month, that's number nine. Hmm. I mean, there's also, there's, they talk about um, 
inverted yield curves is perhaps a bit too complicated for, for, for many of our listeners, but pointing towards a historically it, it, pointing towards it, a recession. It can give false signals, but what yeah. you get, what you normally get is um, when America or any government borrows money for 10 years, it has to pay a higher interest rate than it does if it's borrowing for two years because the, the investor will want compensation for the fact that more things can go wrong over the in the interim period. So normally, long-term paper yields more than short-term paper. At the moment, they're kind of the same. So actually, the, the longer-term paper is yielding less. Why? Because investors are thinking the Fed's going to keep on raising interest rates now, but in the future, we'll have to recant and cut them very quickly because it's going to overdo it and snuff out the economic recovery. So that's why people equate the yield curve, a steep yield curve with economic growth and a flattening to inverted one with economic recession. Yeah. Wow. So... In 30 seconds... Economics 101. (laughs) (laughs) So all of that seems quite doom and gloom. So I think because this is our last episode before the Christmas period, we should send all of our listeners into the new year with a positive note. So I want all of you to come up with reasons to be positive in 2019. I've got two. Okay, go with one first. Okay, so the first one is, and I love the Financial Times newspaper, this is not to knock it in any way, but when I see an article in any newspaper, particularly the knowledgeable FT, describing an asset class as uninvestable, I'm immediately extremely interested in it. Okay. UK equities. Right. Reason to be cheerful. Uninvestable sounds far too much like unsinkable, said I to the Titanic. (laughs) And Dan? So there's a report out from PwC. So this is with your Brexit hat on, sort of saying that um, from 2020 onwards that the UK will actually have stronger economic outlook than the Eurozone. So that may surprise lots of people who thought that it's all downhill for the UK. Um, So they're predicting uh, stronger growth from 2020 out to 2025. So it's a bit of a a surprise, but of course, that's just a forecast. And let's see if it comes true. Well, don't dampen the positive news. Let's just go with the headline. (laughs) How about you, Lo? What what have you got? Uh, So our life expectancy has increased. We're all living longer. If you look at some of the details underneath that headline, it's slightly more gloomy. But let's stick with the headline. We're all living longer, which is great. Very good. Have you um, have you applied for your allotment already in advance? <laughs> so I really want an allotment because I'm old before my time. There's a two-year waiting list in my local area for an allotment. Wow. Well, you better sign up then. If we're all well, living longer, there'll be even more competition for us. Exactly. So, yeah. And so um, another another reason for positivity next year is 2019 is the year of the pig in Chinese culture, and the pig is a symbol of wealth. Lucky year, apparently, as well. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. There you go. And Ross, what have you got? You've got one more, obviously. Well, the other, the other one I've got is just the fact that, as we've just discussed, it's actually really hard to find people being optimistic and bullish right now, which, again, I would personally view as potentially a good sign. Because, as you know, so John Templeton once said, bull markets are born on pessimism, grow on scepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. Now, a, a year ago, euphoria, hey, no shortage. Trump tax cuts, cryptocurrencies, US equities at record high, UK equities going through the... Emerging markets in a massive rally. No shortage of bullishness to euphoria last year. This year, not much. So frankly, that's probably a more positive sign than people might think. Okay, thanks a lot for listening this week and for all who've listened since we launched the podcast earlier this year. We're going to take a small break for the next few weeks. And we hope you have a great Christmas, New Year, and we'll be back in January. So join us then. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. 
You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. <laughs>